sober today only by the grace of a loving God and from following the directions of people like you in places like this and everywhere I go. And Before I get started here, I certainly want to thank those responsible for me being here. Mike did call me and we did take some inventories and uh, that's all right as long as it's just out of concern, you know, that's not an inventory, <laughs> we were concerned. But uh, your hospitality has been great. The speakers before me, uh, I want to thank each one of you individually, Libra, Pat, Beverly, and, and of course Bob last night, some of you I had met before, and but it never ceases to amaze this drunk that, you know, no matter how many times I've heard you, I always get something different if I'll just open up this brain of mine and, and be willing to receive something that you're that you're here to offer. And it's true everywhere I go, uh, Mike was 100% correct. Everybody say, hi, Rip, where's Linda? You know, and, and that's just the way it is. And before I get started again, uh, I'd like to introduce my friend, my wife, my lover, my companion, and and the one today that I am just hopelessly powerless over, Linda. <clears throat> I'm the alcoholic that I attended the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for a long, long time in my life, and I'm here to report to you that I never really got any better. And that's the story that I have to share with you today. And uh, I went to meetings, and I went to meetings for a period of nearly 10 years. And as a result of me not knowing how to live, it was necessary for me to drink again because, see, that's the only thing that I knew. That was the only relief that I had ever known in my life. And so I would not drink, and people kept telling me, said, Rip, if you'll just stop drinking, you'll get okay. And that never really happened to me. Some circumstances got a little better, the jails and the institutions, and but the real Rip, and, and that's who I'm going to attempt to share with you this morning. The book gives me the instructions to tell you what I was like, what happened to me, and what I'm trying to be like today. And, and that's the only thing that I'm allowed to do when I stand behind the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to try to stay away from opinions because, and I'll probably throw a few in, but I'm going to try to share with you my experience. Because it's been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous that sometimes opinions tend to get us sicker than we really are. And we get away from the actual experience. And the big book is real explicit in that. And that's what I've been trying to attempt to do. My real problem is I understand the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My real problem in life started long before I ever took a drink of alcohol. And I can go back into my life and it's just as easily this morning as it's ever been in my life till I was somewhere around six years old. And it was a morning such as this. It was a Sunday morning and my mother got me up and she dressed me to go to church. There was nothing really unusual about this particular moment, morning because, see, I had been going to church for quite some time. I had already became a Baptist, a Southern Baptist, and nobody had asked me if I wanted to be one, but I was one. And I didn't like anything that I heard because really all I heard, and I'm not sure what they said, I only know what I heard, was that if I did all of these things or if I even thought about them, I was going to die and the devil was going to get me. Now, the sad part about that, I'd already thought about a lot of that stuff that that man was talking about. And see, I felt doomed there. 
But Mother made me go this morning. She dressed me up in a little white suit, and it was trimmed in red. It was full of starch, and I didn't want to wear that. And I believe, and this is the best I can recall, that I told me the first lie that I ever told me. And I told me this. I said, if your mother loved you, 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 you wouldn't have to do this this morning. She wouldn't make you do this. And if you're an alcoholic like me, once you tell yourself something, then that becomes the truth, and you live with that, and you walk with that, and I did. And I felt that that morning, and I believe that when my mother did not love me. The second thing that happened in my life, shortly after that, I heard that same mother, and she was saying prayers such as this, God, if my son ever takes a drink of alcohol, I hope you'll take his life. Now I know mother doesn't love me. My mother's in there praying that if I, that I die. See, I left out the alcohol. And I felt that and I believed that and that became the truth and I walked with that until I came to a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was about seven years old, I entered school. When I got to school, I looked around and I saw some kids there that had better than I had. And I said, you know, if your mother loved you, Rip, you'd have as good as they had. I never had the ability to look at the people that had less than I had till I came to you people. And this is the way I did. When I got to school, I didn't feel good about being there. It's been already described from this podium this weekend. I did not feel attached anywhere. And so I learned to do something. I learned to steal. I'd find somebody that had something, and I'd steal it and give it to somebody that didn't have something. And you know, that ain't a bad way to live today, I don't guess. But... I had an ulterior motive, because once I gave it to you, then you owed me something back. And believe me, you were going to pay me back. <coughs> Here I am. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm seven years old. I'm a liar, and I'm a con, and I'm a thief. And I've never met an alcoholic that wasn't one of those. I'm a liar, and I'm a con, and I'm a thief. And I'm walking around with some feelings now, and they're all bottled up inside of me. I heard it described last night and yesterday afternoon. I go to friends' house, and I don't see them living like that. They're happy, and, you know, everybody's getting along good, but that's not going on in my home. So what I do, I lie about that, and I say, you know, my home's the same way. Because I wanted to just be a part of something. What that something was, I had no idea. I just knew one thing. I didn't like the way I felt, and I didn't like what was going on inside of me. But see, I can't go to my schoolmates and tell them how I really feel because if I do, they'll say, get away from me, you're right. And I was comparing myself with their outside, you see. And they looked okay, and so I learned real early in life to just to look okay. And this is the way I walked. And I went through life, most of my life like that, pretending like I'm okay. And I was about to come to pieces from the inside. Now, I finished school, and about 16 years old, I knew a lot about alcoholism before I ever drank alcohol. I had a father, one of the finest men that I've ever known, and he drank a lot of alcohol. Don't know if he was an alcoholic or not, but he drank a lot of alcohol, and Mother went plumb crazy with him. She fussed, she screamed, and, and I think Beverly described that. And I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, if Mother would just leave Dad alone, everything would be okay. But she couldn't. She didn't. And, and that's the way this house went. So I knew about quarrels and I knew about fights and I knew alcohol caused my father to get real sick and we'd have to get the doctor to him and then he was able to go back to work. And I knew all of this stuff. I had a lot of knowledge about alcohol before I ever drank. But at 16 years old, myself and two other guys, we went up to a little old mountain tavern up in North Georgia. 
and they bought a can of Budweiser beer. Now, I didn't want a can of Budweiser beer, but I said, yeah, you know, I'll have one. And I turned it up and I drank it, and it was the darndest tasting mess I'd ever put in my mouth. I didn't like it, but I wanted to be a part of that crowd that night. I wanted to feel right up front with them. Then we bought a pint of old port sherry wine, and, and we took a drink of that. And I didn't like that wine. I didn't want that wine, but see, I wanted to be a part of Now, you, you alcoholics know what happened. You know, I'm no different from anyone else. Thank God for that. I tried to be unique for a long time and nearly died. But somewhere, I don't know how many drinks it was. I don't know if it was the beer. I don't know if it was the wine, and it's not really important. But I know at some point that night, I got to feeling the best that I'd ever felt in my life. And I didn't really care what nobody thought. And I was just okay. And you've heard that described here already this weekend. I was okay. Now, looking back now, I know one or two things happened. I think from that point on, the good feeling was that somewhere up here in this computer, I locked in up there that if you ever feel bad, if you want to feel good, drink some alcohol and you'll feel better. And I didn't know that was going on. But I do know one thing. After we drank the beer and after we drank the wine, we grabbed a cigar and started smoking it. And I don't even smoke, you see. I grew up real quick that night. And we left and went to a late-night movie. And when I got to the late-night movie, I became sick. They carried me home. And, and I laid down. And somebody, I had not learned to put that foot out yet. And anyway, I threw up, messed up the whole house. And that mother that hated me so bad came in there to see about her son, you know. And I lied about the whole deal. Next morning, I got up. And I know to this morning what I really did. Is I put my mind to work. And man, I felt great last night. And I wonder what happened. And I'll tell you what this drunk did. I said, if I hadn't have smoked a cigar, I'd have never got sick. <laughs> now, that was the first night that I ever drank alcohol. And 30 years later, it's God. And I went through everything that I could blame it on. I went through every person, every situation. It started with a cigar and it wound it up with God. And that's really the history of my drinking right there. I graduated from high school and I moved away across Georgia and I began working with the old Atlantic Coastline Railroad and uh, later on became the Seaboard Coastline is known today as the CSX Corporation and, and I began my career with the railroad there. I stayed there for one year and I was drafted into the Korean conflict and then you didn't have any option. If they drafted you, you went and you thanked them for going and, and that's what I did. And I went overseas to Korea after 16 weeks of training and and, and I learned a great lesson in Korea. I learned that if you get up in the morning, if you're hung over, if you'll take a drink, you'll feel better. And that's what I learned in Korea. I was able to survive there. I came back to Waycross. Now, I knew that there was something wrong with me because I had mixed and mingled with people from all walks of life, different countries and everything else while I was in Korea. And I never ran into anybody that it seemed felt the way I did. And I knew there was something wrong with me. So when I was discharged, I came home and I went to a wise man, a very wise old man. And I told him a little bit. And Bob explained that last night. We only tell people a little bit about us. And I told him a little bit about me. And he gave me probably the best directions that anyone could have ever given me. He gave me the solution back then, you know. If I'd have told him the whole truth, he'd have probably told me something else. But he, based on what I gave him, 
he gave me the best solution that I've ever heard of. He told me what I needed to do was go get actively involved in a church, and I did. I went over and I joined this little Baptist church, and I became very, very active in this Baptist church. I was teaching a group of junior boys on Sunday morning. They had a building program. I'd get off from work, and I'd go there and assist in the building program. And I was there every time the doors opened, and man, I was looking good. But let me tell you the honest truth about Rip Smith. It had nothing to do with God whatsoever. I was there to impress people. That's what I was doing. Looking good one more time. My drinking had increased now, especially over in Korea, and I brought that back with me. My drinking's increasing now. If I feel bad, I take a drink. If I feel good, I take a drink because I'll feel that much better. And and, and I know now that, that I am a full-blossom alcoholic. And so I do with the church what I do with everything else. If you get in my way, if you get to interfere, and I have to push you aside. Because, see, I have to drink alcohol. I'm an alcoholic. And I have no idea what's going on with me. While in that church, I was able to manipulate, con. See, I'm good at that. And to make this young lady believe that I was really somebody. See, I could do that. I can still do that today. Is to make you really think that I'm somebody and be nothing. But she bought it, and she became my wife, and God was good to us. We were blessed with two wonderful children, and and she stood it as long as she could stand. And thank God she put me out of that home. Now, it was a long time before I realized that this was going to be one of the first miracles to happen to me in my life. She kicked me out of that home, and the reason she kicked me out is because she couldn't stand me any longer. I did everything that an alcoholic could do. I lied, conned, abused, and used, and, and that's all I know how to do. And, and she just couldn't stand it. It's my good fortune today to work with a lot of people. I work with a lot of wet drunks. And uh, and I see people today go take a gutter and drag it through a $200,000 home and wreck an entire family. And that's why I received the miracle when she put me out. Because, see, I was on the way to the gutter. And it wasn't necessary for her and those two children to get into that gutter with me. And they only turned me aloof. And I'm so thankful for that. Because as a result, see, that boy and that girl and that woman, they wasn't scarred by the alcohol as they would have been scarred if they hold on to me. That's the nature of my illness. If you hold on to me, not that I want to, but I'll drag you wherever I have to go. And you can only get some relief if you turn me aloof. And let me go to wherever I had to go. And thank God that woman had the good fortune of knowing that. Shortly after that, I was fired from that railroad. There's two things the railroad would not tolerate, and as far as I know, they don't tolerate it today. And that's to get drunk on their property and to fight on their property. And I was guilty of both. And that was the second miracle that was going to happen in my life. And they fired me. They dismissed me from the railroad. And I did the only thing that any alcoholic like me knows how to do. I lied, conned, manipulated, and cheated and abused to get my way for nearly a year. And it finally got to the point in Waycross where nobody would believe anything that come out of my mouth. And see, I'm needing a drink now, and I'm having the drink, and, and, and I, need, I, I need to float those checks. I need to do all of these things. And finally, I just run out of anybody that would believe anything that I said. And where I really wound up, was down on US-1 in Waycross, Georgia, Memorial Drive, and I was sleeping in a wrecked automobile in back of a service station because I had one friend left, and that was the guy that owned the service station, and he allowed me to sleep there. And that's where I carried me to. 
Nobody else put me there. I put Rip Smith in that automobile. Now, back then, I would have told you it was life, it was the weather, it was God, it was everything else in this world, the reason I was there. But I know this morning that I'm the one that carried me back there. And I was back there one day, and a friend of mine that worked on that railroad, he came back there to see me. Now, I knew this man. I had worked with him and around him. I had did some fishing with him, some hunting with him, and, and, and he never drank alcohol. He never said anything about me drinking alcohol. But he came to see me one morning. Now, if you don't hear anything else that I share from this podium, please hear this. I didn't call that man to come see me. He came back there to see me that day. He took time out to come see me. And he came back there and he leaned up on the fender of that old wrecked automobile and he said, Rip, he said, I'd like to try to help you. And I didn't understand that. And then this man told me about himself. He did not say anything about me. He told me about himself. And he said, that's why I'm back here, to see if I can help you. His name was Sonny. I said, Sonny, why do you want to help me? And he gave me the message, and I believe it's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous that morning. He said, Riff, I want to help you because I used to be like you, and somebody came and helped me one time. I did not understand that. I really didn't. But I understand it this morning. And this was in 1973, and in 1973, a group of Alcoholics Anonymous members from Waycross had gone to Atlanta, Georgia, and convinced the governor of the state of Georgia that drunks like me didn't need to die in jail, that there was something that could be done, that there was something that could be done for these people to keep them out of the jails and maybe keep them out of the graveyard. The governor bought it. And they came back to Waycross and they opened up what is ever I know as the first so-called state treatment facility. And they opened up in the old railroad YMCA there. And Sonny told me that morning, he said, Riff, if you'll let me help you, if you'll go and do what I suggest for you to do, he says, maybe I can help you get your job back. Now, I know what I heard that morning. I heard job back. I'm living in a wrecked automobile and I can't get nothing to drink. And I'm needing a job. And so I went with Sonny. And they checked me in there. And I heard this program was based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I heard about your easy does it and your one days at a time and how it works. And I memorized all of that stuff. You know, my brain was still in pretty good shape. And God, I left that place with a head full of knowledge. I knew all of the answers. And I knew one thing, that I'd never take another drink as long as I lived. And three days later, they drug me back in there, drunk. And I'll tell you why they drug me back in there. I left from there the same person that went in there. They had taken the alcohol out of me, and I had a head full of knowledge. The book says that will not work. It will not work. And I began probably the most miserable nine years of my life that ever existed. They moved me, they detoxed me and they moved me into a halfway house there because really I had nowhere to go. The railroad did give me that job back and I never could understand that, but I'm beginning to understand a little more about that. I went back to work and, and I began to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd hear somebody jump up and start talking about how grateful they were and they'd drive away in a new automobile and 
and I was walking back and to the work and living in a halfway house, and I'd just get me a good resentment and go get me something to drink. That's what I would do. See, that's the only thing I know how to do. But let me tell you what Alcoholics Anonymous done for this drunk. Any time that I went to those meetings, and I did this off and on, I'd have periods of dryness for nine months, six months, three weeks, two weeks, one day, and just and this went on and on and on. Alcoholics Anonymous never changed. Every time I went, they said, Rip, we loved you. They hugged my neck and they shook my hand and they said, come in and sit with us and have a cup of coffee. And I'm so thankful that Alcoholics Anonymous done that because I was doing all I was capable of doing. And this went on and on. And life got, I use the word worser. A lot of people say they don't understand it. But if you are drunk like me, and if you keep drinking like I was doing, you'll understand worse. And life just got worse. And, and, and I used and I abused because, see, people, that's the only thing I know how to do. And I conned and I manipulated, but Alcoholics Anonymous in South Georgia never changed. They didn't ask me how long I'd been sober. They didn't ask me if I was drinking. They didn't care. They did not care. They were there to stay sober themselves. And they loved me. And God, I fell in love with that. I fell in love with people hugging me, shaking my hand, and offering me a... And that was the attraction that Alcoholics Anonymous gave this drug. That was the only thing that I could see. And he didn't tell me. I don't know how it is here. And I'm just going to inject this this morning because I feel like doing it. I see, I go to a lot of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in different places today, and I, I see a lot of people sitting around, and an old drunk will show up, and they'll turn up their nose at him. They expect people to get sober and then come to Alcoholics Anonymous. That ain't the way the deal works. You come here to try to find a way to get sober. And I don't know why I said that, but it's okay. Bob, it's okay. But this is the way my life was going, and like I said, I, I slowly got into what I call the alcoholic shell. I withdrew from anything that meant anything whatsoever for me, and I ran from it. And I secluded myself into just me, and that's a sad situation to get into. And here's the position I'm in now. I can't get sober. I can't get drunk. I can't live, and I can't die. I'd pick up the newspaper, and I'd see where some chronicle prominent citizen in Waycross had died, and I'd cuss God, why you let that man die, and I can't die, and I'm wanting to die, and I'm contemplating suicide, but see, I ain't got enough guts to do that, and all I do is just contemplate it, but what I'm living in, and, and the book describes that, is that maybe today, this stuff will work one more time, like it did that night, it's 16 years old, maybe that relief will come. But it ain't going to come. See, it hadn't come for a long, long time. But I'm living in that alcoholic hope that this time it'll be different. This time it'll cut some of this pain. This time it'll cut the edge off of life. And I won't have to think about all of this stuff. My mind is in the condition of what I describe as a cane mill. There's a bunch of gears in there, 14 committees meeting, and I don't know what none of them's talking about because I can't get one single clear thought to come out. And this is the condition that I lived in. I stopped going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous this last year and, and uh, of, of this kind of life. And 
And that's the situation I was in. Wanting to die and can't die. Wanting to get drunk and can't get drunk. Wanting to get sober and have no clue. Lost all hope whatsoever. But something happened to this drunk. And I take no credit for it whatsoever. On May the 1st, 1983, I got up that morning and that morning was no different than any morning had been in this drunk's life in a long, long time. Because, see, I reached in the ice box and I got that can of cold beer because I'm fixing to shake and come to pieces if I don't get some alcohol in me. Now, previous to this, I had been to the drying outs. I had been to the emergency room. And I didn't want to go back there anymore because those people laughed at me and they said, well, here's Rip, he's drunk again. And I, and I didn't want that to happen. So I learned if I could keep a certain amount of alcohol in me, I won't go into the DTs and the bugs won't get after me. I got to maintain that level. So I reach in the icebox and I get that can of beer and I open it. Now, I'm, a, I, I'm an alcoholic. I can't be still. You know, I got to be doing something. Now, let me tell you about some circumstances this morning. I'm not sleeping in a wrecked automobile. I'm sleeping in a house. And in this house, there's telephones, there's washing machines, there's dryers. It ain't my house, but I'm living there. I've got a few dollars in my pocket. I'm not broke. So your circumstances were were different than before. The circumstances were even better. But I've never been any sicker in my life than I was. So I picked up some work clothes, and I, I'm working just enough to stay on the payroll. And, and what I'm doing, I'm, I'm drinking to go to work so that I won't vibrate and go into the DTs before I can get off from work. Because if I can make it for about seven and a half hours, I've got the answer behind the seat of that old work truck that I drive back and forth. And if I get like this here, if I can get a few drinks down here on the way home, I'm going to settle down. Now, whenever I get home, I'm going to try one more time to make that stuff work. But it ain't going to work. So this is the condition. I put the clothes in the washing machine, and I look at my watch. It's required at the railroad to have this watch. And uh, So I look at the watch, and I say, well, in about 20 minutes, this wash cycle will be over, and then I'll put them in the dryer. Just as clear as if it had happened yesterday. And I said, well, what am I going to do now for 20 minutes? So I go get another drink. And I looked over there on the carport, and there was a broom. And I said, well, I might as well sweep the carport off. And that's when something happened. The best I can describe it is my mind stopped. It cleared. And I had one clear thought. And that was, I think I'll call Sonny. Sonny was the man that came to see me in back end of the service station that day. And I went into the house and I picked up the phone and I called and Sonny answered the phone. And I said, Sonny, how you doing? I hadn't seen Sonny in maybe two years. He said, Rip, I'm doing okay. How are you? And I said, well, I'm not doing too good. He said, that figures. I said, Sonny, I'd like to talk to you. And he said, well, would you like to come to my home or can I come over to your house? I said, Sonny, I'm okay. And I was, folks. I said, I'm okay. I'll come to see you. Now, Sonny, in this eight or nine year period of time, he'd taken a job with the CSX Railroad of working with people like me. They had a rehabilitation program on that railroad because back years and years ago from the top management, they had realized that uh, through some personal experiences of their own that uh, an alcoholic could be rehabilitated and that they turned out to be wonderful employees. And that's what Sonny was doing. He was traveling the East Coast from probably Richmond, Virginia to Jacksonville, Florida, working with nothing but people like me. 
So I got in that old truck and I drove over to see Sonny. And I walked in in his living room. And Sonny was glad to see me. And he asked me, he said, Rip, can you make it the rest of the day? And I said, oh, yes, Sonny. I've been making it for a long, long time and I can make it today. He said, I'm on the way to Richmond, Virginia. He said, I was supposed to go today, but I put it off one day. And that was the day that I called him. He said, I'm on the way to Richmond in the morning. And he said, there's a place in Statesboro, Georgia that I'd like to take you and see if those people maybe can help you. And I said, Sonny, I'll be ready to go. He said, I'll be by to get you at nine. And I left Sonny's house and, and I remember very little about the rest of that day. I know what I did. I did the only thing I know how to do. I drank as much as I could and as little as I had to to try to live till the next day. I got up the next morning and that morning was no different than any morning that had been in my life in a long, long time. And I reached in the icebox to get that can of beer because, see, I've slept for a couple of hours and I'm beginning to come to pieces. And I drank that beer and I looked at my watch and it was about 8.30 and I went out to that old truck and, and I picked up that can of beer that was in that truck and I drank it and Sonny came back. And he loaded me up and he carried me over to Statesboro, Georgia, to Willingway Hospital. And they checked me in. That's no big deal. I'd been to several places. I'd been checked in here and yonder and everywhere. And they carried me in there and they began the so-called the detoxification process one more time. <clears throat> I had no hope whatsoever. After I was there for about seven days in detox, a man came in to see me. And he sat down and he shared himself with me. He didn't say anything at all about me. He just told me about him. And I knew right off the bat that this fellow knew about me and that I could trust him. His name was David, and he was to become my counselor there. And David said, Rip, he said, I've heard a lot about you, and I know you've had a heck of a time. He said, I want to ask you a few questions. I said, go ahead. He said, first off, do you believe in God? And I said, there's no way in this world I can believe in God. He said, that's okay. He said, I want to ask you, do you believe in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, yes. He said, why? You've never been able to stay sober. See, you people allowed me to come and sit with you those eight years. And I saw people like me out of my own eyes stay sober. I had no clue of how you was doing it. But I saw you do it and that became a fact. And I knew that there was no way in this world that, that I could void that. So that's the only thing I knew. And he said, in other words, you really believe that there is something there that works for somebody? And I said, yes. He said, that's all in this world you've got to believe. He said, will you do something for me? And it was the way he asked me. And I said, yes. He pulled out a yellow ledger and he said, every morning when you get up, he said, I want you to ask God, a God that you don't understand, a God that you don't care to understand. He said, but I want you to ask that God to help you to stay sober that day. And he said, don't you dare ask him for anything else. And I had one grain of intelligence left and I asked him why. And he said, because if you do, you'll screw the whole prayer up. That had an impact on this drunk. I didn't even know that was a prayer. Because every prayer, and I had prayed all of my life, what I thought was a prayer, and all it was was a deal and a bargain. I had never really said one little simple plea, help me. And he says, Rip, if you're able to stay sober that day at night, he says, I want you to thank that same God, the God that you don't understand, you don't care to understand. He said, just thank him for helping you to stay sober that day. And he said, don't you dare thank him for anything else. And I knew not to ask him why, you know. And I'm here to report to you that that's where I've started at 
and I haven't found it necessary to enlarge on that very much. It still works for me today because I was fixing to be introduced to a, the real program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I left that place knowing two things, that I was an alcoholic and just stopping drinking was not going to help me. And I knew where the solution was, and it was in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had missed it, but it was there, and that I needed to go back with an open mind and maybe try to seek it. And I left from there with one other thing, a tremendous amount of fear. And thank God for fear. Because I went home, and I was going to have to do a lot of things that I didn't want to do. And the only reason I did it is because of fear. I did not want to get drunk again. And I sat in meetings there. I, I left and got back in time to go to a meeting at 11 o'clock. And that became my home group. It's the Dixie group. And if good Lord's willing, I'll be chairing that meeting tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. It's my turn. I'm a member of that group. And, and, and I do what they tell me to do there to be in order to be a member of that group. And that's where I'll be back in the morning. And we'll be having a big book meeting tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. But I walked into that meeting and, and, and I had no hope. I just knew one thing. I didn't want to drink. And I, and I had no clue. And I walked around there and I began to go to two meetings every day, one in the morning and one at night. And God knew he had a sick one down there and he started a meeting at 3.30 in the afternoon. Now I go to three because I can't sleep. So I began to go to these three meetings and working the third shift at night in order for me to be able to go to all these meetings. And an old man began to take up a lot of time with me. And this old man showed me that he cared for me. I did not have the ability or the capacity to care at this time. But this man took me under his arm and he showed me how much he cared for me by his example. This man never cussed me. He never hollered at me. But he just gently took me by my hand. And I know now he walked me through the steps of this program by his example. He stuttered a lot. You could not understand him. But oh, the walk that this man could walk. And that's what he did. And he'd tell you right quick, it's okay for me to get on the rip. But I won't let nobody else get on to him. And that showed me that he cared for me. And I fell in love with that old man and... And to make it briefly what I did, I began to act like that old man. And when I began to act like that old man, I started getting better. Because I'm acting different now. And later on, you told me what I was doing was acting myself into sober thinking. And for ten years, I tried to think myself into sober acting, and it never worked. And that's basically what happened to me. And this two years sober, and I have no idea why I'm sober. I'm expecting any day for the, this compulsion just to jump on me and say, Rip, go get drunk, and I'm not going to have any defense whatsoever. And I'm here to report that hasn't happened yet. But I'm thinking this here. And in two years, we go to the state convention over in Columbus, Georgia. And I, and I don't know why I'm sober. Well, I know I'm not drinking no alcohol, but why, why, why this time? And I'm saying this little silly prayer, and I referred to it as the silly prayer because I thought it was silly. But I was kept doing that. So he carried me over there, and on Sunday morning there was a man over there, and later on I was, had the privilege of meeting this man. He's passed away now. But he was at the podium trying to share his experience, strength, and hope, and what happened to him. And, and his life and my life had paralleled so much. And he said that he got up one morning and something happened in his life. 
And he used two words that I'd never heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. They'd probably been said, but I'd never heard them. And he said he was sober because of divine intervention into his life. And my thought went back to the day that I was sweeping that carport off and something happened. See, everybody in Waycross, Georgia and several distant states around there had tried to intervene. The railroad, the wives, the children, everybody tried to intervene. I had tried to intervene into my life and nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, here I am. I'm two years sober. And on the way back from that convention, I'm telling my sponsor, I said, you know, I think I know why I'm sober now. He says, why is that? And I said, just maybe God intervened into my life. And I'll never forget. And I hope the Lord I never forget. And I also know it's the very easiest thing for an alcoholic of my nature to forget. I said, maybe God intervened into my life. He said, that's right. And don't you ever forget it. And that's so easy to forget of why I'm sober today. And that's why I'm here to tell you I'm sober because of God's grace. That's why I'm sober. And it ain't no big deal of what I've done. I tried every way in this world to destroy myself. I tried every way in this world to destroy everything around me that cared anything whatsoever about me. And yet here I am here in North Carolina today and I'm sober. And I'd have never mapped that out. That would have never been in my plan. But here I am. And I don't take any credit for that. What this happened, I went back after the convention and I'm still hating my mother. And I had went to everybody that I knew of that had any knowledge at all about this program. And I, I had asked really for permission to have a justifiable resentment. And thank God I never found nobody or I'd have latched on to it. But I walked into that afternoon meeting one afternoon and I knew, I knew that my period was about up. I knew that I had to do something or another or there was a good possibility that I was going to get drunk again because you had taught me about these resentments. I had did a fourth step and it had not touched this resentment. And the book talks about that. And I had been able to deal with everything else in my life except this deal with my mother that I'd had since I was six years old. And in that meeting that afternoon, I shared this with a guy, and he told me, he's my sponsor today. He told me, he said, book, Rip, take the book here and go to the chapter of Freedom from Bondage, and it'll tell you exactly what to do. And I did that. And I started this process of trying to do with this resentment what the Freedom from Bondage told me to do. I don't know how many days went on, but I know all I know is I followed the instructions. And all of a sudden, one day, I suddenly realized that my mother dressed me up that Sunday morning in that little white suit trimmed in red to take me to church because she loved me and she wanted to show me off. And I also recall back, and now I understand that mother was saying those prayers because she loved me. She knew a lot about alcoholism. I knew nothing about alcoholism. And she loved me so much. That she never wanted me to have to walk the path. That she knew the alcohol could carry me down. And so out of hate, turned to love. Now this did a couple of things for this drunk when I experienced that. Number one, it sold me on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous 
Because Jip, my first sponsor, told me, he said, Rip, they ain't but one program. We call it the program. And it's in the first 164 pages of that book. And then the story is back there. And I began to understand a little bit about what he was talking about. Because, see, my program today gets me into a lot of trouble. But I've never seen the program fail me when I reach for it. My thinking. And my selfish and my self-centeredness. See, that evolves into my program. But the program is already always there. And he says it's guaranteed to work. He said a lot of people fails it, but it never fails an individual. And I know about that this morning, too, because I've been able to experience some of that. Now, also, this told me, see, prior to this, I'd use my group as my higher power. I still didn't want to have nothing to do with God. And when this happened to me and I got okay with Mother, I said, you know, that group didn't do that. This is that power that these people has kept talking about. It's this power out there that has transformed this thinking into to this and this feeling. Now, I know something else this morning. Me and my mother are okay. And my mother knows that me and her are okay. And when I did this, my mother had been dead for five years. And it really worked. The freedom from bondage tells you it will always work. And God, I love to share that. And it worked for this drum. And it sold me on this power. And that later on I was able to get closer to and call God. You know, God of Rip's understanding. And y'all gave me permission to have one that I understood. And nobody else has to understand in the way I understand. And thank God you gave me that permission. My sponsor, Jerk, the first one that I had that led me by his example. He got real sick. I didn't handle that real good. I didn't know he was dying. He never shared that with me. And he became real sick, and I got angry at him because he quit going to meetings. And then I found out that the man was literally dying, and, and, and I was able to, you know, go see him. And I was with him the last day, and he passed away. And there was eight of us that he had sponsored, and, and, and we were his pallbearers, and, and we barely met. And I... I stood there and, and tears just flowing out of my eyes and, and I got a blessing. My mother had died. My father had died and, and I loved my father very, very much. Bob said it last night. I stood over their grave. I knew I was supposed to cry and I wanted to cry and I couldn't cry because I was that heart of an individual. It hurt, sure, when they died. But I see, I got the solution to the hurt. Now, when Joke died, the tears came. And I did what you people told me to do. I experienced for the first time in my life real grief without taking a drink. And I walked through that and I let it hurt just as much as it needed to hurt. And it hurt tremendously because this man had shown me so much. And I loved him so dearly. And this went on for nearly a year, the process of grief, which I believe needs to happen. And I was at a conference up in North Georgia, and I was about 300 people, and I looked out there. And I suddenly realized out of those 300 people, there was 200 of those people that our paths had crossed somewhere in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they were my friends, and I was their friend. And I realized that night that I had lost one joke. But I had 200 jokes sitting right out there. 
And oh, what a blessing that was. And I've been okay with that deal ever since. My experience has shown me that I never know when any of this stuff's going to happen, so I can't take any credit for it. I follow the steps and try to do what the book tells me to do. And somewhere along the way, God slips it in there. And one day I realize I've got it. I don't know what day it was given to me. I don't really understand how it came about. I just suddenly wake up one day and I can experience tears. I can experience love. I can experience some understanding. I can experience some compassion. And I have no clue to what day I got that. And so I give that credit to God. I just try to do the footwork. Shortly after Juke's death, I, uh, in 19... 87, I think it was, I tore up my back with the railroad and I could no longer work for them. And, and that's all I had ever did. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I did what you people had told me to do. I just didn't drink. And I went to meetings. And I did the best I could. And I'm, I was offered a job with the people out of Statesburg to try to do some work with alcoholics. Linda came along and I met Linda in service work. Jill had gotten me real active in service work, and she was in Al-Anon service work, and we would go to conventions and see one another, and we became great friends. She was just getting out of a tragedy of a marriage. I've left out three marriages in there that was tragedies, and they had no need of getting into all of them. I, see, I, I, I never took a wife. I just took me a hostage, you know. That's what I took, and it never did work out. But Linda and I became great friends, and uh, I finally mustered up enough courage after maybe a couple of years to ask her if I could come see her. She lived about 70 miles from Waycross, and I did. And I started on the journey up to see her, and I got about halfway, and I became real afraid. And I didn't know why. And I did what you people had taught me to do, and I looked deep down inside of me and asked, Why in this world am I so afraid? And I received another blessing. And I was afraid going up to see this young lady here because I didn't want to hurt her. I did not want to manipulate her. I did not want to con her. And I did not want to take advantage of her. God had slipped that in somewhere along the way. And I experienced that. And anyway, I went and Linda ran from me and I ran from her and we got tripped up and fell down and a short while later we got married. The best thing that Linda and I have in our marriage today is that She's still my buddy. She's still my best friend. And she's all of those other things. But the main thing is she's my friend. See, I never knew how to have a wife as a friend. It was always a hostage. You do what I want you to do when I want you to do it and how I want you to do it. And if you don't know, you're supposed to guess. See, the small clue is 99% of the time I had no idea what I wanted to be my own self. But... Juke had taught me well. Juke had taught me to try to go help other people. And we started off from the bat with two things in mind when I returned to Waycross, and that was to try to help another drunk and to give everybody else the right to be whatever they chose to be. And that began to work in my life. I'll share this with you. I'm sure all of you got one in your group. We had an old blabbermouth woman in our group. And my God, everything, she, she was an authority on everything. And she'd run her mouth, and she'd run her mouth, and she'd run her mouth. I go back to the word fear. The only reason I didn't get up and walk out of that meeting was I was afraid if I did, I'd get drunk. 
And I sat there and I learned to endure that woman. She's one of the best friends that I have today. And I told Juke, I said, Juke, oh, so-and-so there. I said, I just hate her. He said, well, why do you hate her? And I said, well, she's a blabbermouth. I said, he said, why don't you give her the right to be a blabbermouth? And I did that. I gave her the right to be a blabbermouth, and she never bothered me anymore. And I learned that lesson well. But here I am now, and and uh, I'm trying to find some people to work with, and, and, and I'm still one of them. This is just one of those opinions that I'm going to throw at you, is that I believe that if the people had waited for me to have called them, I would have been dead today. I really and truly believe that. And so, therefore, based on that belief, I can't expect for somebody to call me. Juke says it's your duty to go find them. And then he related this to me. You know, Bill never did call Abby. Abby went to see Bill. Bill was able to get soaked. And I know good and well Bob never called Bill. Bill went and looked up Bob. And, you know, if that's the way this fellowship got started, I think that's the way we need to keep it today. I really do. Let's go find the drum. And the one thing I know this from my own experience will happen. The book says it will. That'll work, but nothing else will work. Is maybe I'll be able to stay sober today. I've never gotten anybody sober. As far as I know, I've never gotten anybody drunk. But I know a lot of people that's helped me to stay sober. And that's the name of the deal. But anyway, after Linda and I was married, those two children, you know, that put me out of the house, the mother did, and one of those boys came to live with us. Circumstances came up, and he came to live with Linda and I. And he didn't like Linda. In fact, he really didn't like me. And he once said, you know, he said, Daddy, you stayed drunk all of those years, and now you're sober. And he said, I'd like to spend some, some quality time with you while you're sober, and now you're married. And Linda and I, we talked about that, and I said, look, let's do what we're supposed to do, and let's don't try to fix that. Let's just keep doing what we're supposed to do. And I'd like to report to you that that boy loves Linda today just as much as he loves me. And we did not do one thing to that, except we tried to practice the principles of this program in that house. The daughter's the same way. She lives in Jacksonville, Florida. And it took her a while to adjust, but she loves Linda today. And we didn't really try to make that happen. We did what you people told us to do. We allowed them to be themselves. But I tell you what's amazing to me today is both of them talks this this program and they my son's been to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and that was at one of my birthdays. As far as I know, my daughter's never been, and yet they know about this program because of the example that we tried to set in that home. I was in a rage one night when that son was living with me. My phone rings continuously all the time. Mike, that's why I got that answering machine. And I my son's sitting there reading the paper, and, and I learned a great lesson from that young man. And I'm in a rage, and I said, you know, I wish that phone would quit ringing. Drunks is running me crazy. And my son never looks up. He's been to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, Daddy, have you ever thought about that phone quits ringing? You might get drunk. And I walked into a bedroom, and I said, my God, I'm supposed to know that. He's not even supposed to know that. And he taught me a great lesson. And I've been able to learn from my children. I really have. And, and I try to be their friend, the same as Linda. And, and that's worked out great. Uh, where I'm at today in life is, to sum it up, my time's running out. I'm trying to be more like you. I'm trying to be an example of what this program of recovery is really all about. I'm trying not to tell nobody 
what all they got to do. I'm trying to just take them like he did and, and lead them around and try to be an example of how to act and how not to act. And just hopefully maybe my acting will influence their acting and maybe then their thinking can clear up. Because to be perfectly honest with you, that's all I have a right to do. That's what happened to me. That's been my experience. And if I get beyond that, I have left Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it says my experience, not my knowledge, my experience. And so for the last several years, that's what I've tried to be. Just go find me a drunk. Tell him I love him. And try to walk with him through this program. And I know one thing that that's done. That's helped me to stay sober. And you'll be amazed of how much you can learn from an old wet drunk. You really will. I'd like to leave you with something. I always close every talk with this. It better describes than I've been able to describe with you people really where I was at in life, what happened to me, and, and what I'm really trying to do with my life today. And it goes something like this. I was in this forest and I was lost. I didn't know the way out. But a hand that was extended to me, and I'd like to call this hand the hand of Alcoholics and Anonymous. It says, Rip, you're in this forest and you're lost. But see, I know the way out. If you'll take my hand and hold my hand, I'll lead you out of this forest. It says, don't walk in front of me and don't walk behind me. Just walk by my side and hold my hand because we're going to encounter many quick mires and stumbling stones before we get out of this forest. But see, if you'll walk by my side and hold my hand, you might stumble, but I won't let you fall. Now, just as we begin to get to the edge of the forest and you can see a ray of light, please don't turn my hand loose and say, I can do it, because if you do, you'll get lost again. But when I've led you safely out of this forest and you know the way out, then it will be your responsibility to go back into that forest, take someone lost by the hand, and lead them out of the forest. Thank you, and God bless you.